Section 23 of A Woman's Journey Round the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Suprada Urwal. A Woman's Journey Round the World by Ida Laura Pfeiffer. Chapter 23 Allahabad, Agra, and Delhi. Part 2. On the 19th of January, I left the famous town of Agra in the company of Mr. Law in order to visit the still more celebrated city of Delhi, which is 122 miles from Agra. There is an excellent post road all the way. The country between Agra and Delhi continues tolerably unchanged. There is no elevation to be seen. Far and wide, cultivated land alternates with heaths and sandy moors and the miserable villages or small towns which lie on the road excite no desire to delay the journey even for a moment. A long and handsome chain bridge crosses the Jamna near the town of Gasanjir. On the 20th of January, at four in the afternoon, we reached Delhi. Here I met with Dr. Sprenger, a very kind and amiable countryman. Dr. Sprenger, a Tyrolese, has won for himself by his remarkable abilities and knowledge, a considerable reputation, not only among the English, but throughout the whole learned world. He holds the position of director of the college in this place, and, but a short time since, was requested by the English government to go to Lucknow for the purpose of examining the library of the Indian King of Lucknow to make known the valuable works and put the whole in order. He is a perfect master of the Sanskrit, the ancient and modern Persian, the Turkish, Arabic, and Hindustani languages, and translates the most difficult of them into English and German. He has already made the most valuable and interesting contributions to literature, and will still continue to do so, as he is an extremely active man, and scarcely thirty-four years of age. Although he was on the eve of his departure for Lucknow, he was, nevertheless, kind enough to become my mentor. We commenced with the great imperial town of Delhi, the town to which formerly the eyes not only of all India, but almost of all Asia were directed. It was in its time to India what Athens was to Greece and Rome to Europe. It also shares their fate. Of all its greatness, only the name remains. The present Delhi is now called New Delhi, although it is already 200 years old. It is a continuation of the old towns, of which there are said to have been seven, each of which were called Delhi. As often as the palaces, fortifications, mosques, etc. became dilapidated, they were left to fall into ruins, and new ones were built near the old ones. In this way, ruins upon ruins accumulated which are said to have occupied a space more than six miles in breadth and eighteen in length. If a great part of them were not already covered with a thin layer of earth, these ruins would certainly be the most extensive in the world. New Delhi lies upon the Jamna. It contains, according to Bruckner, a population of 500,000, but I was informed that there was really only 100,000, among which are 100 Europeans. Footnote 183. At the time of its greatest prosperity, it had two million inhabitants. End of footnote. 
the streets are broader and finer than any i had yet seen in any indian town the principal street chani chonk would do honor to an european city it is nearly three-quarters of a mile long and about a hundred feet broad a narrow canal scant of water and half filled with rubbish runs through its entire length the houses in the street are not remarkable either for magnitude or splendor they are at most one story high and furnished below with miserable porches or arcades under which worthless goods are exposed for sale i saw nothing of the costly shops the numerous precious stones glittering in the evening with the lamps and lights of which many travellers speak the pretty houses and the rich shops must be sought for in the by-streets near the bazaar the manufactures which i saw consisted of gold and silver work gold tissues and shawls the natives execute the gold and silver wares so tastefully and artistically that finer cannot be found even in paris the tissues woven in gold the gold and silk embroideries and cashmere shawls are of the highest degree of perfection the finest cashmere shawls cost here as much as four thousand rupees four hundred pounds the dexterity of the workmen appears still more surprising after seeing the simple machines which they employ to produce their beautiful wares it is extremely interesting to walk about the principal streets of delhi in the evening there may be seen at once the modes of life of both the rich and the poor indians there is no town in which there are so many princes and nobles as in this besides the pensioned emperor and his relations whose number amounts to several thousand many other deposed and pensioned regents and ministers reside here their presence gives great animation to the town they are fond of going out in public frequently make greater or less parties and ride always on elephants either in the neighboring gardens or in the evenings through the streets in the day excursions the elephants are decorated in the most costly manner with rugs and fine stuffs gold lace and fringe the seats called the howdahs are even covered with cashmere shawls richly fringed canopies keep off the heat of the sun or else servants hold enormous umbrellas for this purpose the princes and nobles sit in these howdahs to the number of two or four and are very gorgeously attired in oriental costumes these processions present a most beautiful appearance and are even larger and more splendid than those of the raja of benares which i have described each procession consists frequently of as many as a dozen or more elephants and fifty or sixty soldiers on foot and mounted and as many servants etc in the evenings on the contrary they are not so pompous one elephant together with a few servants suffices they ride up and down the streets coquetting with females of a certain class who sit richly dressed and with unveiled faces at open windows or outside galleries others ride noble arabian horses whose stately appearance is still more increased by gold embroidered trappings and bridles inlaid with silver between these riding parties heavily laden camels from far distant regions walk deliberately along there are moreover not a few baileys drawn by beautiful white oxen which the less wealthy people or the above-mentioned women use the baileys as well as the oxen are draped with scarlet cloths the animals have their horns and the lower half of their feet
painted brownish red, and round their neck is a handsome collar on which bells are fastened. The most beautiful women peep modestly out of the half-open baileys. If it were not known to what class unveiled women belong in India, it would be impossible to tell their position from their behavior. Unfortunately, there are more of this class in India than in any other country. The principal cause of this is an unnatural law, a revolting custom. The girls of every family are generally betrothed when they are only a few months old. If, however, the bridegroom dies immediately, or at any time after the betrothal, the girl is considered as a widow, and as such cannot marry again. They then generally become dancers. The condition of widowhood is looked upon as a great misfortune, as it is believed that only those women are placed in this position who have deserved it in a previous state of existence. An Indian can only marry a girl belonging to his own caste. To the various objects of interest in the streets already noticed must be added the jugglers, mountebanks, and serpent charmers, who wander about everywhere and are always surrounded by a crowd of curious people. I saw several tricks performed by the jugglers, which were truly astonishing. One poured out fire and smoke from his mouth, then mixed white, red, yellow, and blue powders together, swallowed them, and then immediately spit out each one separately and dry. Some turned their eyes downwards, and when they again raised them, the pupils appeared as if of gold. They then bowed the head forward, and on again raising it, the pupils of their eyes had their natural color, and their teeth were gold. Others made a small opening in their skin, and drew out of it yards of thread, silk cord, and narrow ribbons. The serpent charmers held the animals by their tails, and allowed them to twine round their arms, neck, and body. They took hold of large scorpions, and let them run over their hands. I also saw several battles between large serpents and ichneumons. These little animals, rather larger than a weasel, live, as is known, upon serpents and the eggs of crocodiles. They seize the former so dexterously by the neck that they always master them. The crocodile eggs they suck. At the end of the principal street stands the imperial palace, which is considered one of the finest buildings in Asia. It occupies, together with its adjoining buildings, an extent of more than two miles, and is surrounded by a wall forty feet high. At the principal entrance, a fine perspective view is obtained through several successive gateways, which is terminated in the background by a handsome hall. This hall is but small, and is inlaid with white marble and rare stones. The roof is arched over with mica, powdered over with small stars. Unfortunately, these will soon lose all their glittering brilliancy, as the greater portion of the mica has already fallen and the remainder is likely to follow. At the back of the hall is a door of gilt metal, decorated with beautiful engraved work. In this hall, the ex-monarch is accustomed to show himself to the people, who from traditionary respect or curiosity visit the palace. He also receives European visitors here. The handsomest parts of the imperial palace are the universally admired and magnificent audience saloon and the mosque. The former stands in the centre of an open court. It is a long square building. The roof is supported by thirty columns and is open on all sides. Several steps lead up to it, 
and a prettily decorated marble gallery two feet high surrounds it the present great mogul has so little taste that he has had this divan divided into two parts by a very paltry partition wall a similar wall adjoins both sides of the saloon for what purpose i could not learn in this divan is a great treasure the largest crystal in the world it is a block of about four feet in length two and a half broad and one foot thick it is very transparent footnote 185 some writers describe this colossal crystal as being 25 feet long end of footnote it was used by the emperors as a throne or seat in the divan now it is hidden behind the blank wall and if i had not known of its existence from books and been very curious to see it it would not have been shown to me at all the mosque is indeed small but like the judgment hall it is of white marble and with fine columns and sculptures immediately adjoining the mosque is the garden shalinar which is said to have been formerly one of the finest in india but has now quite fallen to decay heaps of dust and rubbish were laying in the courtyards the buildings were almost like ruins and miserable barracks stood against dilapidated walls on account of the emperor's residence it soon became necessary to build a new delhi on my entrance to the palace i had observed a group of men collected together in the courtyard an hour afterwards when we were returning from our visit they were still seated there we drew near to discover what it was that so attracted their attention and saw a few dozen of tame birds seated upon perches quietly taking their food from the hands of attendants or else fighting for it the lookers-on were as i was told nearly all princes some were seated upon chairs others stood around together with their followers in their home dresses the princes are hardly to be distinguished from their servants and in education and knowledge they are certainly not much in advance of them the emperor amuses himself with the diversion which is not more commendable his troops consist of boys about eight or fourteen they wear a miserable uniform which in make and color resembles the english their exercises are conducted partly by old officers and partly by boys i pitied the young soldiers from my heart and wondered how it was possible for them to handle their heavy muskets and banners the monarch generally sits for some hours every day in the small reception hall and amuses himself by watching the maneuvers of his young warriors this is the best time to get presented to his majesty he is eighty-five and at the time of my visit was so unwell that i had not the good fortune to see him the emperor receives from the english government a yearly pension of fourteen lakhs one million four hundred thousand rupees equals hundred and forty thousand pounds the revenues of his own possessions amount to half as much more but with all this he is not so well off as the raja of benares he has too large a number of people to maintain of the descendants of the imperial family alone more than three hundred as well as a hundred women and two thousand attendants if to these are added the numerous elephants camels horses etc it may be easily understood why his exchequer is always empty he receives his pension on the first of every month it has to be brought to him under the protection of the english military 
or it would otherwise be seized by his creditors the emperor is said to be very discreet in raising his revenues by various means for example he confers honorary posts and appoints officials for which he requires considerable sums of money and can it be believed he always finds fools enough to pay for such absurdities parents even buy appointments for their children the present commander of the imperial troops is scarcely ten years old the most remarkable fact however is that the vizier who manages the emperor's income and expenditure not only receives no salary but pays the emperor annually ten thousand rupees for this office what sums must be embezzled to make up for this the emperor issues a newspaper in his own palace which is in the highest degree absurd and laughable it does not treat of politics or the occurrences of the day but exclusively of domestic incidents conversation and relative affairs it states for example that the sultan's wife a owed the laundress b three rupees and that the laundress came yesterday to ask for her money that the lady had sent to her imperial husband to ask for the sum the emperor referred her to the treasurer who assured her that as it was near the end of the month he could not command a penny the laundress was therefore put off until the next month or the prince c visited at such an hour the prince d or f he was received in such a room stayed so long the conversation was on this or that subject etc among the other palaces of the town that in which the college is located is one of the handsomest it is built in the italian style and is truly majestic the columns are of uncommon height the stairs saloons and rooms are very spacious and lofty a fine garden surrounds the back of the palace a large courtyard the front and a high fortified wall encloses the whole dr sprenger as director of the college occupies a truly princely dwelling in it the palace of the princess begum half in the italian and half in the mongolian style is tolerably large and is remarkable for its extremely handsome saloons a pretty and hitherto well-kept garden surrounds it on all sides the princess begum attracted great attention at the time before delhi was under the english dominion by her intelligence enterprise and bravery she was a hindu by birth and became acquainted in her youth with a german named somber with whom she fell in love and turned christian in order to marry him mr somber formed a regiment of native troops which after they were well trained he offered to the emperor in the course of time he so ingratiated himself with the emperor that the latter presented him with a large property and made him a prince his wife is said to have supported him energetically in everything after his death she was appointed commander of the regiment which post she held most honorably for several years she died a short time since at the age of eighty of the numerous mosques of new delhi i visited only two the mosque roshun ad daula and the jamna mosque the former stands in the principal street and its pinnacles and domes are splendidly gilt it is made famous through its connection with an act of cruelty on the part of sheikh nadir this remarkable but fearfully cruel monarch on conquering delhi in the year seventeen thirty nine had hundred thousand of the inhabitants cut to pieces and is said to have sat upon a tower of this mosque to watch the scene the town was then set fire to and plundered the jamna mosque built by sheikh jihan 
is also considered a masterpiece of Mahomedan architecture. It stands upon an enormous platform to which forty steps lead up and rises in a truly majestic manner above the surrounding mass of houses. Its symmetry is astonishing. The three domes and the small cupolas on the minarets are of white marble. All the other parts, even the large slates with which the fine courtyard is paved, are of red sandstone. The inlaid ornamental work and stripes on the mosque are also of white marble. There are great numbers of caravansaries, frequently with very handsome portals. The baths are unimportant. We devoted two days to making an excursion to the more distant monuments of Delhi. We first stopped at the still well-preserved Purana Kale. All the handsome mosques resemble each other much. This one, however, is distinguished by its decoration, the richness and correctness of its sculptures, its beautiful inlaid work, and its size. Three lightly arched and lofty cupolas cover the principal building. Small towers adorn the corners, and two high minarets stand at the sides. The entrance and the interior of the domes are inlaid with glazed tiles and painted. The colors are remarkably brilliant. The interior of every mosque is empty. A small tribune for speakers and a few glass lusters and lamps constitute the whole decoration. The mausoleum of the Emperor Humayun, very much in the same style as the mosque, was commenced by this monarch himself. But, as he died before it was completed, his son Akbar carried out his intentions. The high-arched temple, in the center of which stands the sacrophagus, is inlaid with mosaic work of rare stones. Instead of window panes, the openings are furnished with artistically worked stone lattices. In adjoining halls under plain sacrophagi rest the remains of several wives and children of the Emperor Humayun. Not far from this is the monument of Nizam Uldin, a very sacred and greatly venerated Mahomedan. It stands in a small court, the floor of which is paved with marble. A square screen of marble with four small doors surrounds the sacrophagus. The screen is still more delicate and finely worked than that in the Taj Mahal. It is scarcely conceivable how it was possible to execute such work in stone. The doors, pillars, and elegant arches are covered with the most chaste reliefs, as fine and perfect as any that I have seen in the most artistic towns of Italy. The marble used for them is of remarkable whiteness and purity, worthy, indeed, of these great works of art. Adjoining this are several pretty monuments, all of white marble. They are passed by with some indifference when the most perfect of them all has been seen first. A great deal has been said about a large water basin, which is surrounded on three sides by cells already much dilapidated. The fourth side is open, and from it a beautiful stone staircase forty feet broad leads to the water basin, which is twenty-five feet deep. Every pilgrim would consider his pilgrimage of no account if he did not step in here immediately on his arrival. Divers plunge from the terraces of the cells to the bottom of the basin, and fetch out the smallest pieces of money which have been thrown in. Some are dexterous enough to catch the coin even before it touches the bottom. We threw in several coins which they succeeded in bringing up every time, but I can scarcely believe that they caught them before they reached the bottom. They remained long enough under water each time, not only to pick the coin up but also to look for it. 
The feat was certainly surprising, but not, as some travellers affirm, so remarkable that similar ones might not be seen elsewhere. Our last visit on this day was to the beautiful monument of the vizier Sofdar Chang, which is also a mosque. In this monument, I was especially struck by the inlaid work of white marble and red sandstone upon the four minarets. It was so diversified and so delicate, so chastely executed, that the most expert draughtsmen could not have produced it more correctly and delicately upon paper. The same may be said of the sacrophagi in the principal temple, which is hewn out of a block of fine white marble. The monument is surrounded by a tolerably well-kept garden laid out in the European style. At the end of the garden, opposite the mausoleum, stands a small palace principally belonging to the king of Lucknow. It is at present kept in good condition by the few European inhabitants of New Delhi. It contains a few articles of furniture and serves for the accommodation of visitors to these ruins. We remained here overnight, and thanks to the good-hearted and amiable Mrs. Sprenger, found every possible convenience we could desire. The first and most agreeable thing after our long wandering was a well-furnished table. Such attentions are doubly deserving of thanks when it is remembered at what a great amount of trouble they are procured. It is necessary on such excursions to take not only provisions and a cook, but also cooking utensils, table services, bed linen, and servants, enough and short for a small establishment. The train of baggage, which is always sent on before on these occasions, resembles a small emigration party. On the following morning, we went on to the Kutub Minar, one of the oldest and most beautiful buildings of the Patanas, from which people, the Afghans, derive their origin. The most wonderful part of this monument is the so-called Giant's Column, a polygon with 27 sides or half-round corners and five stories or galleries, whose diameter at the basement is 54 feet and whose height is 26 feet. A winding staircase of 386 steps leads to the top. This building is said to belong to the 13th century and to have been built by Kotobuddun. The column is of red sandstone and only the exterior is of white marble. Decorations and wonderful sculptures are wound in broad stripes around the column. These are so finely and neatly chiseled as to resemble an elegant lace pattern. Any description of the delicacy and effect of this work would be far exceeded by the reality. The column is fortunately as well preserved as if it had only been standing about a hundred years. The upper part leans a little forwards, whether artificially as in the tower at Bologna is not decided. Its top is flat like a terrace, which does not correspond with the remainder of the architecture. It is not known whether anything formerly stood upon it. The column was in its present condition when the English conquered Delhi. We mounted as far as the highest point, and a most charming view of the whole remains of Delhi, the Jamna, and the unbounded plain opened itself here before us. The history of the people who once ruled Hindustan may here be studied in the ruins of imperial towns lying one close beside the other. It was a great and imposing prospect. Many places where magnificent palaces and monuments formerly stood are now cultivated fields. Wherever the ground is broken up, fragments of ruins show themselves. Opposite the tower or column of Kutub Minar stands a similar unfinished building, 
the base of which is considerably larger in circumference than that of the finished one. It is supposed that these two towers belonged to a magnificent mosque, of which some courts, gateways, columns, and walls still remain. Footnote 190. If these two towers did belong to a mosque, why were they built of such different sizes? End of footnote. These few remains of the mosque are remarkable for the perfect sculptures which covered the walls, gateways, etc., both outside and inside. The entrance gateway has a considerable height. The columns in the courts are of Buddhist origin. The bell with long chain is sculptured on them in relief. In the forecourt of the mosque stands a metal column similar to that at Allahabad, except that there is no lion upon its summit, and its height is not more than 36 feet. It is defaced by several marks and slight injuries which are ascribed to the Mongolians, who, when they conquered Delhi, attempted in their destructive rage to pull down these columns. But they stood too firmly, and all their exertions were insufficient to destroy any of the inscriptions on them. The remaining Patan or Afghan temples and monuments, which lie dispersed among the other ruins, resemble each other as much as they differ from the Mahomedan and Hindu buildings. The monuments of this kind generally consist of a small round temple with a not very high cupola, surrounded by open arcades supported on pillars. Here also, in the neighborhood of Kutub Minar, a hospitable dwelling is to be found. A ruined building is fitted up and three of the rooms are furnished. On the way homewards, we visited the observatory of the famous astronomer Dei Singh. If that at Banaras has been seen, this may well be passed by. Both were built by the same architect and in the same style, but that at Banaras is well preserved, while the one here is already much dilapidated. Some travellers consider this memorial as one of the most wonderful works of Indian art. Near the observatory stands the old madrasa, schoolhouse, a large building with numerous rooms for teachers and pupils, and with open galleries and halls in which the teachers sat surrounded by groups of youths. The building is rather neglected, but is partly inhabited by private persons. Adjoining the madrasa stands a pretty mosque and a very handsome monument, both of white marble. The latter was erected by Aurangzeb, in memory of his vizier Ghasi al-Din Chan, the founder of the madrasa. It is as perfect in its execution as that of the Saint Nizamuddin, and appears to have been erected by the same artist. The palace of Feroz Shah is near New Delhi. It is indeed somewhat in ruins, but there is much to be seen in the existing remains of the building. The forecourt of the mosque was a short time since cleared with great labor of the rubbish and masses of stone which covered it, by the untiring zeal of Mr. Cobb, the esteemed editor of the English Delhi News. It is in very good preservation. In this palace stands the third metal column, Feroz Shah's Lath. The inscriptions upon it show that it existed a hundred years before the birth of Christ, and may therefore be considered as one of the oldest monuments of India. It was brought here from Lahore at the time this palace was built. The Purana Kila, or the old fortress of the palace of Babur, is much decayed. From the height and style of the remaining fragments of gateways and walls, an idea may be formed of the magnitude of the palace. The ruins of Loglukabad are in an advanced state of dilapidation, 
and do not repay the trouble of a journey of seven miles. The other numerous ruins are little more than mere repetitions of those already described, with which, however, they cannot be compared in size, elegance, and beauty. They may be of great interest to antiquarians and historians, but by myself, I candidly admit, they were not much valued. I must not neglect to mention the English military station, which is situated upon some low hills near New Delhi. The peculiar formation of the ground renders a journey there extremely interesting. A district of enormous blocks of red sandstone, between which beautiful flowers were growing. There are numerous ruins here, much the same as in Delhi. End of section 23 Recording by Suprada Urval from Saratoga, California